And as I listened to that song, I could feel in my heart the Lord speaking to me and opening my heart to this invitation. And he spoke to me, not audibly, but in my heart. And he said, Angie, I know where you are. Like, I know you listen to this conversation and you look over everything and all you see is what's lost, right? You see ashes and you've lost a lot. I will not even argue with you, but I would love to invite you to stop asking me to give you your life back. Because that's what I would say all the time, right? I just want my life back. And he's like, we are not going back. Like, I want to take you to a place of joy and rest and peace and abundance. And it's going to be a long road, right? Like, I I knew it from the time, but I want to take you back so we can move forward. And in that corner of my couch with that song playing, I surrendered to that process with the Lord. Thank you for stopping by my podcast, Finding God in Our Pain. Welcome. Hi, I'm your host, Sherry Pilkington. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of how the God of the Holy Bible meets real people in their real pain. We look at the good God we profess through the lens of pain and suffering. I'm processing the most painful season of my life after unexpectedly losing Larry, my husband of 32 years. In my journey, I've discovered that there are many types of deaths. Maybe you've asked God, how could you let this happen? Why me? Where are you, God? Do you even care? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Here at Finding God in Our Pain, we don't shy away from the tough questions. I ask them to my guests. I share what I've experienced. We give real examples of how God shows up in the darkest, most painful situations in life. May the stories that you hear and the advice you receive encourage you to engage the heart of God about your painful places or memories or experiences or even your unmet expectations. Lean in close to God's heart because he speaks beautiful things in the dark. Oh my goodness. This conversation is deeply layered and beautifully delivered by my guest, Angie Bauman, who intimately knows loss and uncertainty. A simple car ride with her family turns their world upside down. She's in the car with her husband and two young sons. A vehicle crosses the line and hits them head on. The crash affects her entire family, not only the family in the vehicle, but all of her family and the friends who were courageous enough to help step into roles and take on responsibilities of what it takes to support a family. The tragic results of that accident put Angie and her oldest son, seven years old at the time, in the hospital. And between the two of them, they had eight surgeries. So in the blink of an eye, she began a journey of loss and total uncertainty at no fault of her own. And then at a point when she's seeing great improvement and gaining some independence again, she's working hard to hit those physical therapy goals with a strong desire to do away with the level of need and personal care that she receives on a daily basis, 24-7. She wants to be making all of the decisions for her and her family, and she wants to be free of the guilt that comes when others shoulder the weight of caring for her and her family. But she's blindsided by a brain bleed. It was the result or a result of the car crash, but yet it doesn't present itself until 18 months later. She's in this great place of improvement, moving forward, and now she's starting all over again. Because of her extended recovery, Angie's belief system, and not exclusive to her faith, is more than simply challenged or shaken. It's shattered. And since Satan is famous for attaching himself to our traumas, 
in the midst of Angie questioning everything about her life, Satan brings a past trauma to the forefront of her mind and heart. Satan's intention, of course, is to destroy Angie with this compounding trauma, but she decides to accept God's invitation and allow him to heal her. In the intimacy of his invitation, he lets her know that he's not giving her back the life she had. He's taking her back to move her forward. Satan may have brought past trauma to the forefront, but God was going to reveal his heart to Angie. He was preparing a table for her in the presence of her enemy. At one point in our conversation, I asked her, how do we take negative, traumatic lies and thoughts captive to Christ? And she lays out several things that we can do to interrupt Satan's intentions and rewrite them with God's promises. And let me share this real quick, and then we'll get into the conversation. In every episode that I do, I get a glimpse of God's heart for us. And that might sound strange because of the topic I've chosen, pain, suffering, trauma. For me, though, I think it's in that very context, the utter despair of life, where it becomes the exact reason I remain in awe of God's power and authority, His ability to rewrite, repurpose, redefine things like sin, shame, guilt, trauma. Every time someone shares their personal story, I witness Colossians 2.15. But allow me to preface that scripture with the very first part of Ephesians 6.12, because I think it will give us a little more clarity for Colossians 2.15. So Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. So let's look at Colossians 2.15 now, because this is why I say I get to witness the power and authority that Christ has over evil. So Colossians 2.15 tells us, in this way, he, Christ, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I pray that the legitimacy of the power of the cross send chills through your body as a way of confirming God's authority over evil. When people are willing to share their journey out of very dark places and into the light of Christ, I consider that an incredible blessing to my heart because I get to hear how loss and uncertainty entrusted to the God of the Holy Bible redefines the evil things of this life because God uses devastation as a detour to fulfill the calling and the purposes on our life. All right, so back to the conversation with Angie. There is so much quotable wisdom in this conversation right down to her parting words as we closed our time together. And I'll leave that as something for you to look forward to as you listen to all that she has to share. Let's dive in and find God in the painful places of life. Welcome to the show, Angie. I am excited to share your insight and wisdom about recognizing the lies of the enemy, taking them captive to Christ, and how letting him rewrite those lies can, with his truth can really bring some beauty into our life. One of the ways that I feel connected with your message is through you sharing your personal story of a devastating car crash and what you discovered about God in that context. And one of the aspects of your story specifically for me is the way that past trauma is reintroduced. And when it shows up, God invites you to let him heal you, not only from the car accident, but from the abuse you endured when in high school. But not to get ahead of ourselves, tell us a little bit about the car crash. Hey, thanks for having me first. Can I just say that? I'm so honored to be here. And I just, as I was listening to you introduce this, I just felt this stirring that someone might be going through something that's really hard right now. And I just want to say right off the bat, if you are, I see you and it 
it can turn out to be one of the greatest blessings in your life. It doesn't feel like that right now. I know it, but it can, and it has for me. So thanks for the opportunity to share. So yeah, in the summer of 2010, it was Father's Day, and my husband, Matt, and my two boys who were six and seven months at the time were in our minivan, our brand new, I might say, minivan. It hadn't even had an oil change yet. And there was a man who fell asleep at the wheel, crossed the center line and hit us head on. And it just, it rocked it, basically everything that was in our life at that time ceased and everything began to focus on recovery. So my older son was airlifted from the scene. He had a concussion. Both of his arms were broken. I was taken to a different hospital with a concussion. My shoulder was crushed, multiple broken bones, all of that. I spent, we had eight surgeries over the next couple of weeks between the two of us. And then I spent the next nine months in rehab, in physical therapy and rehab, trying to basically be strong enough to take care of myself again. It was months before I was left on my own and I could drive and do kind of all of those things that happened or that, you know, that were, were used to happening in our life. I didn't walk. I didn't move from bed to wheelchair by myself. I didn't go to the bathroom by myself. I didn't bathe myself. It still makes me emotional, Sherry, when I talk about it because just to be in that state of vulnerability and helplessness but also sometimes humility. Like it's not an easy thing to let someone bathe you, right? Or to let someone make all the decisions for you or to tr to decide when you go where, basically, you know, even when I could get out. And not only just my personal hygiene, nutrition, medical appointments, all that that everyone else controlled because of out of necessity, I was used to, as a matter of fact, I I prided myself. Is that the way you say it? I was proud of myself for being a wife and being a mom and being a pastor and being a volunteer at school and getting the groceries and do all the things that we do as women, as wives and mothers and daughters and sisters and friends and all of that. And I had a lot of balls in the air that I was juggling and a lot of plates that I kept spinning and not only did, was my body broken, but it just felt like my life had come crashing down around me. And I was left, you said in your intro about like reintroducing trauma. I was left in this helpless situation where I felt like I had no voice and no value. And that was sort of the, it's that those feelings are what catapulted me into an an understanding that God was inviting not just physical healing in this season, but deep emotional healing as well. My mind just keeps going about the layers of devastation when something like that happens. The loss. And when we're attached to so many roles, we find our identity in there. I'm not saying that's the right thing, or at least maybe at a mm -hmm. certain point it becomes the wrong thing. But when those things are stripped away, there's a free fall of identity and who am I now anyway, mm -hmm. now that I don't have these things. And the doing aspect, that's really strong in the human nature is to do. Even us Christians, we have our little checklist, right? The good Christian checklist mm -hmm. where we, we want to win God's favor. Yeah. So we even struggle with that as well. Mm -hmm. And then no voice and no value. So it sounds mm -hmm. like that's what Satan, because Satan 
connects him or attaches himself to traumas. Mm-hmm. And so now here you are in a, a very vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, humiliating position. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was humiliating and discouraging and defeating and, you know, just all of those things yeah. that you just wonder how you got there. And I found myself not even, I could, I didn't have two arms to open a Bible or a devotional or something. And it, 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 even just as you were saying, like as Christians, those things that we do, even, even my spiritual disciplines were sort of rocked because I'm like, I, it, there's nothing but me and you here. There's mm-hmm. nothing but the sound of my own voice and my ears that can be open to hear you, right? And mm-hmm. that even that felt inadequate, uh, mm-hmm. which was something that that really raised a question in my own heart. What even your spiritual disciplines? What are you depending on to connect with God, right. other than just you, right? Like you can't do anything, and yet are you still who He created you to be? Wow, that was a question that I'm still I'm still answering these years later, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I'm answering much different than I did at, at that place in my life. Were you able to grieve or were you like most of us where you just keep uh, taking the wave after wave of uncertainty and you're trying to recalibrate and adjust, but mostly absorbing the impact and struggling to keep your head above it? I grieved it in layers. I grieved it in, you know, I grieved pieces of it. I thank God in his kindness there was a sense in which I was so focused on getting better. I was very, I was a very good physical therapy student. <laughs> I went to therapy three times. Once I could get out of the house, they took me to th- therapy three times a week for two and a half hours a session. But I got to know my therapists very well. There were two women who took care of me, right? And they, I will say, they helped me grieve it, right? Mm-hmm. As my body was building. I would talk to them about things. Oh, makes me emotional. I would talk to them about things I couldn't do and wanted to do, right? And that was a part of that <laughs> grieving process. They began to help me set realistic expectations for what I could uh, expect in the future because my body wasn't going to go back to the way it was before, right? And so I think those hours in therapy, and I think about my husband in that time too, because our baby was, like I said, at seven months when the when the car crash happened. And my husband had a lot of anger. You know, people process things differently. And the fall after that happened, he would take the baby for long walks in our neighborhood for in the stroller. And he would come back, you know, having had talked to God and like letting his anger out that way. You know, so I think he provided us, I know he did, he provided us opportunities to grieve and share. I will say though, 18 months after the car crash, I developed a brain bleed. I had a complication from a process where they were doing some pain. They were trying to help with alleviate some pain in my back and a, a procedure went incorrectly, at least in my body it did. And I developed a brain bleed. And that was, that was a place where I struggled more with grieving and dealing with the longevity of the situation that I had even right after the crash. The shock had worn off and that just felt terribly unfair, Sherry, if you know what I mean. Like I'm like here I am. I'm just I'm just crawling out these months later out of this hole and then I'm slammed back down. And I think often that happens to us too. And the enemy will try to say, see, God doesn't see you. God doesn't care about you. You've been working so hard, and yet you're back in this place where you can't even take care of yourself again and all of those kind of things. I guess I say that as encouragement, too, even though it doesn't probably sound like encouragement, but sometimes it's a long road. But we can train ourselves to look for God's faithfulness in our long journey. Like, we can decide, no, this is hard. This doesn't feel fair. 
it's not fair, but mm-hmm. I trust in your promises and I will look for the places that you're showing up in my life. And I think I learned that with the brain bleed 18 months later, maybe it just, it, it solidified th- that way of thinking even maybe more because because the car crash was like, there was just so much with all of us, you know? Because after the crash, I didn't take care of myself, obviously. I had a full-time caregiver. Alex, my older son, came home from the hospital. Like I said, both of his arms were broken and he couldn't do anything for himself. He couldn't even turn himself over at night. So he needed a full-time caregiver. The baby, seven months old, had to go live with my mother for a while. He needed a full-time caregiver. You got three people in the house that are down. And my husband, my husband's work was very generous to him, but he couldn't be off work forever, right? Like, (laughs) and so, you know, it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot for a long time. Yeah, because even as you keep talking, I keep getting how far out this impact went. Mm -hmm. Everybody's impacted, schedules, jobs, normal, everyday stuff is impacted. At what point did the abuse rear its head? How did that get reintroduced into this recovery process of of a physical? Yeah, it was was a couple months after the crash when I first heard the invitation. And I will just say right off the bat, this has been a long road for me. But you were just saying about how much the impact was. And because there was so much need, basically my husband, my parents, my husband's brother, and a couple of close friends, every like 10 days, two weeks or so, they would gather in our home with their calendars. There's probably an app for this now, but there wasn't at the time. With their calendars. And they would sit around in our living room and they would look at what had to be done the next couple of weeks. Mm, Talk about humiliating. Like basically these were things that I used to do. And who has medical appointments? Who can take, who can do the grocery shopping? Who can pick this up? Who can do these meals? Who can take care of Josh, the baby? Who can, you know, who needs to do that? Because they were all trying to work and take care of us. And, you know, and we had to have these caregivers and all that. And I hated these gatherings so much. Like it just was this, like it it just shined the light on everything I had lost. Mm. And quite honestly, this particular day, I just wanted to not be around at all. But I didn't get to say that my sister, she propped me up in the corner of the couch my shoulder was so bad and she would put these pillows underneath me and just try to get it to a place where it wasn't hurting. And, and once she got me there, I couldn't get up myself. So I was just stuck there and I began to um, listen to them talk. And I asked my sister if she would bring me my iPod. And so I just put my earbuds in and I just tried to shut the whole thing out. I just didn't know. I could see their mouths moving, but I'm like, I just don't, I don't, it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't, I don't get, you know, and I was just fighting those feelings of anger, maybe resentment, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to listen to my iPod. So I listened to a couple of songs in my iPod. And then there's a song by Third Day called Born Again. I don't know if you're familiar with that song, but Mac Powell, who's the lead singer, was the lead singer for Third Day, talks about, today I found myself after searching all the years and it wasn't the person that I thought it would be. It feels like I'm born again. feels like I'm living for the first time in my life, some of the lyrics say. And as I listened to that song, I could feel in my heart the Lord speaking to me and opening my heart to this invitation. And he spoke to me, not audibly, but in my heart. And he said, Angie, I know where you are. Like, I know you listen to this conversation and you look over everything and all you see is what's lost, right? You see ashes and you've lost a lot. I will not even argue with you, but I would love to invite you to stop asking me to give you your life back. 
because that's what I would say all the time, right? I just want my life back. And he's like, we are not going back. Like, I want to take you to a place of joy and rest and peace and abundance. And it's going to be a long road, right? Like, I, I knew it from the time, but I want to take you back so we can move forward. And in that corner of my couch with that song playing, I surrendered to that process with the Lord. I did not know he would take me back to that abuse. I did not want to go back to that abuse. I did. I mean, it really wasn't even on my radar because it had been so long ago. It had been 20 plus years ago at that point. And I didn't really talk about it very much at all. And I just thought, I'm over it. Look at me. I've got my life and all these balls and plates and all, right? Like I'm doing fine. But he just was very insistent with me in a loving way we're not going back. That's not what, that's not what our plan is for you. I think that was one of the biggest revelations that I had that when God repairs and restores something, he doesn't go back to how mm -hmm. it was. He turns it into something using his value system, yeah. heaven's value system. And it is yeah. something completely mm -hmm. different and much more beautiful than I would have thought to ask of ask for. Something that you said in a previous conversation that you and I had, and I'd love to hear you elaborate on it, is when you shared that God spoke into your spirit saying, if I didn't look at it, I'll continue to live from it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I think I can say that now. I wouldn't have articulated, of course, very well then, but I I was living from a place of not having a voice and not having value. And I know we'll get to that story in just a minute, and I can kind of tell you why that was. Because I didn't believe that I was worth, and, and I didn't really even know that I believed this, but now I know. I didn't believe that I was worth anything for who I was. I just didn't believe in that. I didn't even, I, I just didn't. I believed that I needed to be worth something for what I did. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't work through this abuse, the only thing that was going to happen was I was going to go right back to those old habits, right? Of just, okay. I, I, I'm here, I can organize, I can lead, I can produce, I can do all of these things. And then, then I'll have a place at this table. And he wanted me to live from his, he wanted me to live from the way that he saw me, not from the way that the rejection after the abuse happened defined me or how mm -hmm. I was allowing myself to be defined based on that circumstance. Especially as children, young people, we create a belief system around things that happen to us and the experiences that unfold yeah. for things and such as trauma. A lot of times you're left to figure things out on your own and your experience is horrifying. And then on top of that, you have the voice to come forward and it gets worse. It's even more horrifying. So I'm thinking uh, as you're recovering from the car crash and you're feeling like you have no voice and no value, where did that develop in the, the abuse? Tell us a little bit about the abuse. Yeah, yeah, sure. So when I was 16, I was groomed and seduced into a romantic relationship with one of my high school teachers. And the relationship went on about nine months. And, you know, he was a charismatic, beloved, uh, longstanding teacher and member of that community. He had a lot of parent support. The kids just adored him. It was like, you know, the favorite teacher every class, you know, in the yearbook kind of thing. Like it was just that kind of situation. And what I've learned, Sherry, is that an abuser doesn't only groom his or her victims, but the organization or the community in which they're a part of as well, right? So those, the abuser hadn't only groomed me, but also years of grooming the community to overlook 
his shortcomings, if you will. Interesting. Never yeah. thought about that. I hadn't either. Uh, it makes perfect sense. I think that's why people are, are so reluctant to speak out in churches, in schools, and organizations against bosses and those kind of things because there's this there's this understanding. But if you say something, everything good they've done will be negated or everything right. good they've done will fall apart and all the people will be hurt. And so mm -hmm. we turn a blind eye to the ones who are being abused so that we don't have negative impact on the ones who are being, who are holding up the abuser or who mm -hmm. are or being positively impacted by the abusers, not abuse part of their job or role. Does that make sense? Right? Like, yeah. I mean, and so it, so it gets very better, complicated. Better to sacrifice one, you, than mm -hmm. the whole community look like a fool. Yes. Yes. Wow. And I, and that story is repeated over and over again in our wow. society. But yeah. when I decided it, there was, so there was a, an investigation that was opened up. The police were involved the Department of Children and Family Services was involved, and there was a kind of a long investigation, a lot of interviews, and it became very public. It was a small town of about 1,400 people. So, you know, about, you know, four seconds went by and everybody knew that something yeah. was happening, right? And I was asked to testify before the board. It was just a long, drawn-out, devastating process. And what happened was is the community made a decision, I guess, to believe his explanation of the relationship to ignore the fact that there was a, a special girl a year at least right like this was there was a long line of this and to discredit me and there was a lot of like letter writing and phone calling there was kind of like a little campaign for him you know to support him I remember one night Sherry and this was a this is a night that I lived from for lots and lots of years. And when something triggers me, I, I have to be really intentional to know to not live from this place again. Right. So this is like the, this was, this was the turning point for this. There was a night that I was going to testify before the school board. And before the, before we went into closed session, there was a meeting, like an open session in the cafeteria. They, they moved it to the cafeteria because so many people came to the board meeting that night and people began to, I said, alone. There was one friend from school that sat beside me on this cafeteria table down there and everybody else was kind of over to the side. It felt, I felt like a, the, the way the Bible describes a leper. Like I, I really, I felt like that. Right. And, and they began, people began to stand up and read letters of support. Some people had signs. People would testify to all the wonderful things that he'd done in that community over the years. And are you going to believe one person? And a couple of times it got a little rowdy and people would clap their hands and stomp their feet. Are you going to let one home wrecker bring this down? Like public, like kind of like, you know, big statements about my character. And I was, I had just turned 17 at the time, if that gives you a perspective of that. And so I listened to that and listened to them clap and cheer. And then I was called into closed session and I walked through this like maze of people just silent people like parted as i went in and followed the the administrators into the closed session and i went through the motions of continuing to testify and tell my story in front in a, in a group that was all men around the table asking very personal things with no advocate i was going to say did you have and anybody with you nope, no one no nope. wow. and and i left that meeting deciding no i didn't know that i did but living from that place of rejection. Right. And even though I knew that I wasn't that person, I began to understand that everyone, incorrectly understand, everyone sees you as that person. And so you constantly have to be 
proving that you're not that person, right? So I began to move through relationships expecting that kind of rejection if I mess up or you know when's it coming and all that and 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 so that's the place that I was living from and how much work it took and I loved Jesus and I believed that he loved me like that never changed it really never changed but I also believed that I again like I said at the beginning that I really didn't have a voice and that I didn't have value to the world and I can see how you would arrive at that conclusion because mm-hmm. I can only imagine the names they were calling you mm-hmm. and screaming oh, yes. at you. And yeah. Yeah. I think that is one of the biggest deterrents for people mm-hmm. coming forward. It is. And I do know now it wasn't me. They did. It wasn't me. I was just the thing that was threatening their security in him, right? The program that he had built, the way that they found their identity in the program. They didn't want to be wrong about him. I think sometimes when something like that happens and we realize we're wrong about someone, then it just raises up all these other questions about what else we're wrong about. Like it just was too shocking and too scary for them to accept that truth. And the easiest way to move forward with their life and get their life back, you know, the way like I was saying before, was to limit the threat of that. And in that moment and in that circumstance, that threat was me. Did anyone else come forward? Was was he prosecuted and found guilty? So he actually did lose his job from that school after that happened, but he did not lose his license um, in the state of Illinois. And so he did go on to teach other places. If anyone else came forward, I did not know it. I still don't know it at the time. But it was interesting because the caseworker for the Department of Children and Family Services actually brought in a woman who I thought was very old at the time. She was probably in her early 20s. She had a baby. And so I thought I thought she was ancient. <laughs> I remember <laughs> thinking she, that. Yeah. So she came in and I in the and the caseworker introduced us. And she had brought a yearbook with her. And she said, I just want you to read something. And she and I don't even know how. This is the way God works. She opened up her yearbook, and in the yearbook was a long letter from this teacher to her. And so I began to read some of the things that he wrote to her, and it just all sort of had this familiar ring to it, right? And then it said, it it was words of a poem that he had said he'd written for me, and it was like word for word, you know, what he'd written in her yearbook for her. And that was the turning point for me. Up until that time, I was saying, oh, we're just friends. It's just, you've got the wrong idea. We're, you know, it's fine. And he would tell me what to say, and I would say it, and all, you know, going back and forth. And when I read that, it all just sort of fell apart and into place at the same time. And I knew he'd been lying Mm. and I knew I'd been wrong. And it was a day or two after that, I took this big folder of letters uh, to the department, uh, to that caseworker, and she copied them all. And that's what, that's when I began to, to open up about what had happened. I think it sounds like maybe the young woman saw something going on and to share that with you to say, hey, I don't I understand. know. Yeah, I don't know how we were connected, but she she must have reached out to the caseworker or something. And then the caseworker thought it might be helpful to them. Mm-hmm. They were wanting me to they they knew I wasn't being honest about what the relationship was. And they were wanting me to to be honest about it. But I was afraid, of course, and. That's the thing that turned it. Yeah. When I'm thinking about all that's unfolding and now you're having to deal with trauma from the past and and, and you're trying to recover physically and feeling so much. And I and these are my words because I think about that. I would feel like a burden to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. But, 
So what was your biggest why question for God? I love that question. I think I don't want to sound over spiritual. I do think I, well, okay, two questions. I'll ask this. Why all of us? I think that that was really hard for me, the the separation between me and my children and the time that I lost with them. I think that was probably one of my biggest whys. And I think also why now, you know, even when I realized that this was a journey of of deep healing, I think why now? My the most difficult thing for me to overcome was that my younger son, Josh, he we were separated enough that when I began to heal, he didn't want me anymore. And that was a long process. I had to fight to be back. I would, even when I would go into his room, like when he would wake up for a nap, he would just shake his head and scream, no, no, no. And Sherry, that was heartbreaking as a mom. You're about to make me cry. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. And he would allow my husband and my mother to care for him, but he he didn't want me to. And I think one of the hardest things for me still is that time with Josh. I never bathed him again. I did teach myself to change his diaper again, but let me tell you, we got, we had some messy times. <laughs> some messy, stinky times. We had some messy times. We had some poo on both of us because I only had one arm for a long time, but I, you know, but I was trying so hard to fight for that baby yeah. and they change so fast at that age, you know, and they grow and stuff so much. But I think, I think for myself, why now? Because mm. of when is the right time, but because my kids were so young and I felt like they needed me so much. And I think why this disconnect between me and Josh, that th- those were the hardest things for me. Mm. They are indeed cutting to a mother's heart. That's yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think on the flip side is that my boys have been the motivation to do this work. They were the motivation for me to do the physical work when I was going to PT and I was such a good student. I wanted to take care of my children again. That mm. was the main thing. I want to take care of my children again. And so tell me how much work I need to do so that I can do it as fast as I can. And then when it changed from physical to emotional healing that the Lord invited me to do and go back into this abuse and think about it and think about the forgiveness I needed to offer to myself and to others, to think about the place from which I was always operating from that place of expecting rejection and feeling like I had no voice and no value. I wanted to change that in myself so that I could mother them better. Mm. I did. I was mothering them from a place of brokenness. And as they were growing, their stuff was hitting on my stuff more and more frequently, as you can imagine, right? And I, I don't think I would have done it for me, but I think that's the answer to the why of why now, because he knew I wanted to be the kind of mother I could be, but couldn't be from that place. So I think that answers your timing question too. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. For sure. Mm -hmm. Their age, their need, Mm -hmm. their need for mom. Yeah. Yeah. We're using the word invite. God invited you to Mm -hmm. let him heal you. What is the significance of the word invite? Why would he invite you? I believe that God is a gentleman, right? Like he does not force himself on us at all. And I think especially in my situation, being a trauma and abuse survivor, like he 
he knows what's best for me and I've learned to trust his voice, but he doesn't make me do anything, right? I don't believe he makes any of us do anything. I know I know that he doesn't. He did just he just doesn't. Even his correction is lovingly invitational. And so he 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 wasn't going to answer my prayer to give me my life back, but he also was and did love me for the next few years as I tried to keep one foot on both sides. Like, I need to be really productive, but I'll also try to heal, right? And he's like, okay, we can try that, <laughs> right? And so as much as, as much as we will surrender to him, the more abundance that he promises us, we will receive for, from him. And so I guess that the, I, that's the word that it, that, most closely matches what I felt like he did. I am inviting you on a journey that will bring beauty from these ashes, but I, you can go back if you want to, because you get, you know, you get to go and waste your inheritance in a foreign land, right? Like I, you, you get to do that and I'll be right with you there and I'll be right here. But I want you to do it this way. And I promise you my way is what has your best interest in mind. With some beauty along the way, and especially mm -hmm. the end result of restoration, redemption. Yeah. I, I kind of chuckled at the a minute ago when you said, you know, you were had one foot here and one foot there on both sides, trying to work both sides and God waiting patiently. And that is one thing that I have found that he has done for me. He will wait till I get to the end of myself yeah. with regard to where I want to take this in my own control. But there is nothing more powerful than surrendering mm -hmm. that to God because there that's where I have gone from believing what I knew about God to knowing about yes. God. Yes. So when I think about this doing and the being, talk to me a little bit about what did you learn in the being with God versus being able to do and produce and check the lists and perform? I learned that that often the enemy will use our own giftedness, our greatest strengths, in a way that actually causes harm to us. Like he he will try to, right? Like he will try he will try to flip that narrative, if you will. I am a person of great productivity, you know, and God has gifted me with wonderful spiritual gifts that can bless the world. And so I am still a very productive person today. And when I'm not feeling very good about myself, I'm trying to find value from that productivity. When I am resting in this in a surrendered posture to the Lord, the productivity is an overflow of my love for Him and an overflow from the abundance He gives in my life. So it's like this really tricky fine line, right? Mm. And when I find myself focusing on numbers and productivity and all those kind of things in ministries, but online ministry can be very tricky that way because everything is measured in numbers. But when I find myself looking at things like that, I hear this little check in my spirit now from in where do you find your value, my love, right? Remember that I am pleased with you, whether this podcast has one download or a thousand. This is not, this is not a measure of my pleasure with you. And sometimes I'm like, dang it, but I'd rather have this than right. that, of course, right? <laughs> but so I think it's just a matter of me always recognizing when I'm when I'm stepping into the value from doing. And stepping back and connecting with the Lord again to remember my value is because he says so, period. And he loves it when we do for him. Like, I I know, I feel his pleasure of yeah. my doing. I really do. But he doesn't love me more. Right. 
And that's been a that's been a really key important part for me to recognize. Like I have faith without works is dead. I believe that, but it's the works that is the overflow of the understanding of how much we are loved. As I receive his grace, so can I offer it. As I receive his peace, so can I be it. As I receive his rest, so can I live uh, as a non-anxious presence around the people around me, right? Like this is the overflow. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm trying to manufacture it, I'm stressed out, anxious, and all those kind of things. But as I'm as I'm receiving it and believing his promises, then I can just be it instead of doing it. That's such a beautiful example of the way, you know, Satan introduces death into this life. And so we have complications and trauma and suffering, but yet God meets you in that place. It's what he did for me. And he turns it all for your good. Satan meant to shut your mouth, silence you, shut down your gifts and talents so that you would never use them again, believing the lies that are attached to trauma. But God comes in and does something incredibly different and incredibly beautiful. That's the power of God. I wish more people understood that his presence in the midst of pain and suffering is one of the most beautiful things. Yeah. And and so often, I think this is true for so many of us, the very thing that we'd like to push away and not deal with and not talk about is the very thing that God will use Mm. to bring glory to his name. Amen. Like there, I had so much shame when I didn't talk about it. Mm. I have no shame about this now. Mm. Not that I never deal with any shame ever, but I just, I have no shame about this now. And it's because I have brought it to the light. And not only that, but I've had the immense honor of sitting with people who and holding the, the hand of women who are in their 70s, 80s sometimes wow. after I've talked to and just cry. And they're like, I've never told anybody this, right? Like, and this is, and I'm like, today's the day. Today's the day we mm-hmm. don't have to live like this anymore. You know, there's so many of us and it's not a club that anybody wants to be a part of, but the enemy works in isolation. If he can tell you you're alone in your pain, if you can, if you believe you're the only one, then it's just shame and tangly and defeating but you're not alone. And and we we know we're not alone when we hear other people telling their stories. That reminds me of the way that Satan moves with regard to when when he's trying to put a lie on us or when we have embraced a lie. Maybe we're not even aware that we've embraced right. that lie. But Satan uses those things to drive a wedge between you and God, hoping that you will bite that apple and your shame pushes you away from God because you can't talk to God if you're full of shame. Like, what is he going to say about that kind of thing? Was there a particular lie that Satan used to try to drive a wedge between you and God? Oh, yes. So this is the lie that I still am aware that is the most effective. And that is that the enemy whispers in my ear, remember, Angie, you'll never belong anywhere. And that keeps me trying to do for acceptance because I don't actually belong anywhere. And if I don't do the right things or do enough of the things, then they'll know I don't belong there and I'll get kicked out again, you know. And that's just, he's used that since my childhood. When I was a kid, I moved around a lot. And my father was an itinerant pastor, so I moved schools a lot and stuff. So that was a that was a lie that was planted. I just never really felt like I had community. We did not have close extended family relationships, not a real nurturing environment as a small child, you know, all of that. And so that that understanding became early. Part of that's what made me so vulnerable to the teacher's abuse. Mm-hmm. And then that lie or that belief was just compounded, right? Like 
expounded all of the all of the yeah. things when that happened. And so, oh yeah, that's that's still his favorite one for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point too, because just because we lay a, a lie at the foot of the cross, Satan wants to bring that up as often as he can, saying, yeah. Look, remember last yeah. time? Well, here we are again yeah. doing the same thing. You sure yeah. that God you profess right. is so good? Mm-hmm. So that makes me think, how can we recognize a lie? Or maybe a better question would be, how can we tell that we're aligning ourselves with fear Mm -hmm. instead of God's promises? Something you had mentioned in our previous conversation. Our negative emotions or our anxiety, however you want to put that together, I, I think about them as like emotional hunger. I always say, if I'm sitting at my desk working and I get hungry, I go to my fridge and I get a cheese stick rug or something. Like I'm like, I do something for the hunger. These negative emotions are not wrong, but they can be the invitation to say, what am I thinking about right now? What am I believing about myself right now? What am I struggling with? What am I afraid of? And I think if we will if we will slow down our own conversation with ourselves, Sherry, this is what happens to me sometimes. When I start feeling that thing, that soul chaos, I call it sometimes, and probably we all know what that feels like, where we're anger or we think, or we're reaching for a cookie or we're, just, you know, we have the things that we do, right? If we will slow down that conversation with ourselves and pause and say, what am I believing right now? A lot of times we will identify the lie. What am I believing about myself or believing about this person, which ultimately is about myself? And the enemy is crafty, but he's not terribly creative because he everything is about fear. Like it says the enemy is a liar and he's the father of the lies. And that is so true. And sometimes we think it's this lie, it's this lie. It's this lie. Ultimately, this is my hypothesis. I encourage you to <clears throat> test it out, see what you think. Ultimately, I think every lie is be afraid. Be afraid mm-hmm. of dot, 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 right? But he's mm-hmm. always telling us to be afraid. That is why the, the Bible says over and over and over again, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. He's calling us back all the time. Ooh, bring your fear to me. Bring your fear to me. I will cover it with my promise, right? I will remind you of my goodness. I will remind you of my faithfulness. So will we, when we feel that way, whatever that way is to you, my friend, will we pause and say, what am I believing right now. And then how do we take that captive to Christ? Once we identify what we are fearing, because I, for me, when I peel away all of my symptoms and all of the trauma and stuff, for me, it comes down to the fear of being alone, ultimately separated from God. And so how do we take that captive? What does that mean to take something captive to Christ? So I have a very practical answer for this. If you are if you are beginning this process, I really recommend just say the name Jesus. Like mm-hmm. Jesus, it, it it's not magic, but there's something about the power in his name that will bring peace immediately. If you know this is something that you battle, prepare your own toolbox, your your, your resources when you're not in that place. These are the things that I, if you have an example, like you just said, one of my fears is, or one of the core lies is I'm, I'm alone, right? Or, or I'm afraid of being alone. Then you need to know you, my friend, you share, you know, Joshua 1, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you believe that you can cover that with a promise. So find the promise 
it's probably multiple places, right? But real quickly, you don't have to know the exact way that the NIV says it or the NLT says it or whatever. But if you can know, this is the scripture I hang on to when I believe that. That is like, like maybe another step to that, you know? And then put it on your computer screen or put several, put it on the, you know, your mirror when you get in the bathroom, you know, put, put this places so that you can be like, I'm reminded of this verse. Google what verses answer I'm afraid, you know, whatever, like you can find, there's all kinds of resources for you to find these verses. Something else that I use a lot too, is I have a playlist on my phone of songs that when I'm struggling, these are songs that are go-tos for me that I, that help me silence that internal dialogue that's taking me to a place that's not beneficial. So there's lots of other things, but just as you begin to build your own resources, um, it's just his name, find at least one scripture that answers that lie. And then also if it moves you, if music is something, music is something that can really move me from a place, from one place to another, you know, worship music or whatever, find a song or two that when you hit those songs, they're the ones that you can't fight the tears when you hear it, right? Like that's the, that's the answer. He is answering you in that song. So interrupt that. Interrupt it. That lie or that place that you're getting ready to let your mind wander off into and spiral out of control because I know what that feels like. Yeah. So interrupt that with the name of Jesus and that there is something about the name of Jesus. That's right. And uh, scripture looking for specifically a promise or something that overwhelms what you are thinking. Mm -hmm with the truth and the love of God. And then of course, worship that music. Uh, Even when uh, my husband had passed away, I wasn't going to church. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't necessarily praying prayers. I wasn't praying for anyone. I was in a dialogue with God constantly, but the worship music always had it on because it says God inhabits our praise. And I just needed to know he was close by. I needed to know that he present. But those are powerful tools and people can, like you're saying, kind of make them personal for themselves too, as to the way that they can interrupt and redirect toward God's truth and into God's love. What limits us with regard to God's presence and favor? Do we limit ourselves a lot of times? We don't have the the ability to limit God's favor in our lives, but we limit our ability to receive it. That's what I believe about it. Distraction we don't we don't hear him. We think he's not talking to us and we don't hear him, but we're so busy and distracted and we've got so much going on and something always in our earbuds and you know all those kind of things. So it's really about it's really about making time with him a priority. As we make time with him a priority, we will receive his blessing. We will receive his abundance. I I believe that with all my heart. So no, I don't think I, I sin separates us from God. But as we spend time with him, he will refine our hearts. He will bring those things to the surface. He will invite us to consider aligning less with our own flesh and more with his spirit. And those are the things that will then make us more able to receive that which he offers. And his heart is about healing, not condemning. Never. Like anytime that comes up, as a matter of fact, I think anytime we're triggered, we fall into trauma, we we spiral into our inner dialogue or whatever. He's saying, "Hey, babe, you want to give that to me? I'll yeah. ta- I can help you with that. Yeah. I can find. I can give you healing for that." Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Any voice that's hateful or shaming isn't his. Yeah, it's just not. No, he not didn't talk all. to his, he didn't talk to his kiddos like that. No. What is something about God that continually surprises you? I am overwhelmed. <laughs> by how much 
he wants me to live in freedom and victory. Like he continues. I was, I just had an opportunity to go on a spiritual pilgrimage in Italy. And I wanted so bad to have these huge revelations, Sherry, while I was there. Like, I'm going to Italy. I've never even traveled outside the country. I'm going to go where Paul was held in prison before he was executed. And I'm going to meet Jesus. I'm going to learn all these things that I didn't know. And I went through the days and they were so great. And I was getting towards the end of the trip. And I'm like, God, we haven't done the thing. Like, what's the thing, you know, and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was in the mountains of Italy at that point, And I was overlooking just the most beautiful scenery I'd ever seen in my life. And my heart was just flooded with this idea that it was about joy. Mm. And I was like, well, it has to be bigger than that. Like, I, like that's right. so simple. Like, right. <laughs> okay. And I just felt of all the years that I really had walked in shame. And I felt like the Lord was like, it's, that's all it's about. That's why I called you here. That's why I made a way for you to come here. That's why you're standing on this mountain right now. I want you to live in joy. And I never had before. I'd never embraced that. I'd never felt that calling before. There was too much shame is an obstacle to joy. Shame is a barrier to joy. And so as he's released me from layers of shame, there's this opportunity to have this joy, to receive this joy. And I thought, you have brought me, I, I mean, all this way. And the only thing, really, I mean, he was with me, don't get me wrong, but the, the only message he had for me, he's like, we're not talking about anything else. That's really it, baby. That's why I brought you here. I want you to know how much I want you to live in joy and victory and freedom. And uh, it's astounding to me. It really is. This is what I say about God a lot of times. God is good and kind, but with him, those are two very simple words that run extremely deep. Yeah. I think about the simplicity and I I tend to think that when the word says that he uses the simple to confound the wise, I think it's things like that, that yes. the, the simple things about his value system, because he's always behind a bigger thing. Let's say this uh, podcast that I do, or maybe even you're talking about the trip there, mm -hmm. but there is something behind that, that he wants to reveal about himself to us. Mm -hmm. it, the pain and suffering. Yes, that is our reality, but he's like, I want to show you something. I want to show you something about who I am. Mm -hmm. I want to show you something about who you are to me. Mm -hmm. And so I know I've missed it so many times when I'm mm -hmm. asking like you made a reference to, Lord, can you just put my life back together? Lord, can I just, can you just heal me? Can you just get this done? Because we, I just, this is so inconvenient and I need to get going. And yet he's like, babe, you, you missed this opportunity. I'm going to go. You, you're ready to go. I'm going, I'm going and I'll move on. But you missed it, Sherry. Yeah. You missed it. Mm -hmm. And that, when I think about that, sometimes it breaks my heart because there is a level of intimacy with God that he always wants to reveal about himself. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so busy doing. <laughs> I am learning the value of being. I really am. We have run out of time and I am heartbroken about that because this has been so rewarding for me. I'm excited to think about what my listeners will experience when they listen to your insight and your knowledge and your experience. And I, I just so appreciate you being willing to be vulnerable and expose yourself like this. Because when I listen to people's story, I understand that I am in an intimate space with them on something that was very traumatic and painful and has a lot of loss surrounding it and uncertainty. And that is, that, that's vulnerable. That's vulnerability to me. So thank you very much for that. I'm going to wrap with two questions that I always like to ask my guests. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you want to share before we close? I will just reiterate what I said a moment ago about time with him. There is no substitute. So 
if, if you're any place that you're struggling, we're all struggling someplace, the place that you're struggling that you don't have the answer for, the answer isn't about working harder. It's about connecting more. And I just believe that with my whole heart. So I just encourage you to make your spiritual health a priority. It's hard to do, but it is harder not to do. My final question, what is the one thing you want for our listeners to leave this conversation with? If they can't remember anything else, they remember one thing. What is that one thing? Your life and your story is not defined by your hard thing. As a matter of fact, it's that hard thing that God can bring the most beauty from. That's some beautiful hope for somebody today to realize that. Angie, you've been fabulous. Thank you so much for your time and your energy. I have so appreciate it. It has been a joy connecting with you. Yes, thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.